Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, episode 19. Dirty Money, Here's How to Clean It, a novel by Ed Adams. The Right Kind of Bill. Pixie and Claire had been waiting for Jake to arrive at their meeting place. They had taken up residence in a Starbucks next door to Cannon Street Railway Station. It gave a good vantage across the road to McDonald's on the other side. They had decided to meet in a different venue so that if they were being followed it would be fairly obvious. Not many people would first visit Starbucks and then cross the road to another shop selling coffee and food. Jake's taxi arrived and he stepped out, paying the driver from the pavement, before walking to the McDonald's. Claire and Bigsy followed across the road and looked at Jake. We have it, he said, pointing to the envelope already on the table in front of him. It contained the contract and also a separate sheet of paper bearing the title Treasury Bill. Jake, Bigsy and Claire had expected the Treasury Bill to look something more spectacular. It was merely a series of computerised reference codes. As well as the code, it also said that the bills were not matured, although they would be in two days. There were some simple instructions to sell direct. It just required the seller to log on to the account and to select the appropriate function. It said that by providing the information, a request would transmit the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, which acting on the Treasury Department's behalf would offer the bill to different brokers and sell it to the highest bidder. The proceeds of the sale minus a seller's fee would then be deposited into a designated account. Claire looked relieved. It would be a lot easier for me to create the new version of the T-bill from this information, she commented. She was firing up her laptop on the table in the McDonald's. We must move quickly, said Jake. Firstly, we need to make a good copy of the contract and then the Treasury bill information. Across the road was a quick call printing shop. They requested that everything they had in the envelope was copied and that Claire's additional item was printed. Then they set off for the nearby banking streets of London and found a suitable commercial bank with a dealer desk. It was unusual to deal in person, but the bank was not phased by the request or the amount. Doing this in central London was a lot easier than in the provinces, although Jake, whose account was to be used, was asked for passport and other details. The nature of Jake's job meant he was always carried this kind of information around and he easily provided the details requested. This will take around 30 minutes, said the bank employee, handling the request. Jake had decided it was better to visit the bank alone. If anything were to go wrong, he was the only one known at this point. He knew that the bank systems would include comprehensive video surveillance. Within 20 minutes, the bank employee came back with a serious expression on his face. Jake expected the worst, but the employee said... Transaction is complete. The money is now in your account. Please sign this acknowledgement, which also includes details of our fees. Jake was slightly numb as he heard this. Their plan had worked surprisingly well. They were now sitting on the best point of part of $1.5 million. In the meantime, Dylan was now without access to either the contract or to the money and was feeling somewhat exposed. He had returned to his own office in the city because, on the advice of Jake, he had been asked to make everything look as routine as possible. Two hours later, a courier arrived at his office and left an envelope. Dylan opened the envelope. It contained the contract, the treasury bill codes and a typed note from Jake, which read as follows. You followed our instructions accurately. We have copied the documents you provided, so they are returned to you quickly for your processing. The legal document looks fine according to our own people. 
The treasury bill has a hidden catch at present. It is highly discounted for the next two days. It will only yield you 10% of its face value. When it matures, it will have its full face value, so we do not recommend it to be sold at present. The attached Treasury Direct information gives you further details about the options, but in our opinion, Fredrickson has been clever in giving you a guaranteed payment that you should only exercise after you have returned the signed contract. The information about the level of discounting of the Treasury bills was false, but Jake, Biggs and Claire hoped it was plausible enough to hold Dylan from trying to cash the order for the next two days. The attached Treasury Direct information also looked plausible, but with the minor doctoring to it performed by Claire, the description in the letter to seem to tie up with the facts in the leaflet. Claire had also used her graphic skills to make a minimal change to the coding shown on the Master Treasury information. It meant if Dylan did try to access the information for sale, then it would actually give him an access security error. This would look like a password transcription error, but would add a few hours to the discovery process by Dylan. It was also a small enough error to make Dylan and Fredrickson hopefully think it was a coding error rather than anything suspicious. Claire changed a couple of zeros in the document into eights. The computer-coded form of a zero and an eight did look similar, and this could be put forward as a plausible cause of an error. In the event, Dylan took the letter at face value. He was more relieved to get everything back and assumed that the people he was dealing with were being demanding about releasing payment before the rest of the contract was signed. And in any case, tomorrow he would make his second visit and get the other 2.7 million euros from Fredrickson. Right now, he was thinking about ways to stage his disappearance in the aftermath of the processes started by the gentleman he had met a couple of days earlier in the restaurant close to the River Thames. Serious Crimes Unit The combination of the National Security Agency in Langley the Government Communications Headquarters in Cheltenham, the London Metropolitan Police, the Criminal Intelligence Agency and the US Serious Crimes Unit had been in liaison for the last two days. A sequence of events triggered, now causing a lot of attention to focus on London. Unknown to Amelia Brophy, who was on her vendetta, the combination of Fredrickson's movements, the two clumsy Russians at Jake's flat and Amelia Brophy's calling to the Arabs in Saudi Arabia now created a cauldron effect in central London. The NSA in Langley had been able to easily track the four Arabs. Their American destination cell phones were equipped with the now legally standard issue GPS chips used in America. Fredrickson was somewhat unlucky. As a Scandinavian, he just happened to be a culture, from a culture where cell phones are highly popular and he had a modern and elegant Scandinavian model. It was a very recent design and happened to have the American-style GPS built in, officially, so that new capabilities could be added to the technologically interested Swedes, Norwegians, Danes and Finns. Langley had been watching this group of five for some time and the GPS had made this easy. Now they were in UK jurisdiction. Their tracking passed to local authorities who were tracking by both GPS and the local cellular network. The American system was still superior and more selective than anything done by the phone network, which was more reactive, tracing things after an event instead of before it. An incident room had been established in a set of offices close to Chelsea Police Station. The offices were officially overspill police offices, but because of the nature of the Chelsea area with its royal connections, these buildings were secured to a much higher standard than typical police stations. They also had considerably more technology, communications and even access to heavy equipment from guns through to helicopters and armoured artillery compared with any normal cop shop. 
There were the nearby Kensington barracks, the home of soldiers who, whilst able to ride around prettily on horses in arcane armour, also had some of the most high specification equipment of any modern army, and it was right on hand in central London. The incident room was now being run by Chief Constable Dennis Wilson. Dennis had known Detective Inspector Truman well, and in his mind he felt that the current events were linked with the recent shocking situation where Truman and Green had been murdered. So the combination of his rank and only slightly revealed interest in the case ensured a suitably senior stakeholding in what was becoming a potentially major incident. The visit of the four Arabs to London had been relayed at a high level after they landed and cleared customs. They had all moved to the Dorchester Hotel in Mayfair, which was a typical haunt for such illuminaries. Fredrickson was also in a hotel in a similar area, although since they left Riyadh there had been no further communication between them. The London police had been separately investigating the murders of their officers in a nearby part of London, and there were clues that the two Russian heavies were involved, which led to their being shadowed as they moved around London. As a consequence of Langley and GCHQ involvement, the UK authorities had arranged phone taps for the Arab mobiles, as well as for Fredrickson and the two Russian gangsters. Now they were piecing the events together. There was to be a meeting between the Russians and an intermediary in the hotel's restaurant called Baglioni's. At the same time, a meeting between the four tracked Arabs and an intermediary in the same restaurant. A professional operator was running the phone being used to arrange all of this. It had been used to set up the calls and meeting and then been disconnected and dropped out of the grid. Whoever was acting as coordinator was based in London but operating at a very professional level. The Chief Constable selected Chief Inspector Donovan to run the processes for this situation. Donovan was under a lot of pressure from various directions. In the Operations Centre, or War Room as everyone was calling it, there were representatives from NSA, GCHQ, Met Police, the Army, Royal Protection Unit, Household Cavalry and the Serious Crimes Unit. The Royal Protection Unit had already intervened and the significant royals were all out of the town or currently being ferried by helicopter to Balmoral in Scotland. The basic plan was to treat the possibility of something serious happening at the restaurant, but more likely the restaurant venue was being used to plan something which would then take place on another occasion. The main possibilities under consideration were terrorism-related, either planning an attack or settling the bank rolling for something. The direct location was an unlikely target for anything, so it was much more likely that this was a preparatory meeting. As the meeting was in London, this was also speculation that whatever was planned was more likely to be affecting New York, Paris, Frankfurt or another capital city. If it was not terrorism, the other great prospect was financial in some way. This was Donovan's own personal favourite, and he linked it to the matters affecting the murder in the nearby Sloan Square Art Gallery, the killings of Truman and Green in Kensington, and now this meeting. Donovan, along with everyone else, assumed that Fredrickson was involved in the situation, and had no knowledge of the involvement of Amelia Brophy. There were only two days from first notification to the meeting, and by the time the team had been mobilised, it was the day before. (laughs) 